Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome back the one and only Dr. Jason Fung. years ago, people would have just laughed at you if you said, well, you know, what about insulin and cancer? Now it's like the sort of hottest area of research because we're all recognizing that diseases of metabolism are also diseases of growth. That is too much insulin equals too much growth, which is going to tip the scales into predisposing you to, to cancer. It's not, even, it's not a cancer causing agent, but it's a cancer promoting agent. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, get ready, grab your pen and paper, grab your fatty cup of keto coffee or tea, and be prepared for a spectacular conversation with Dr. Jason Fung. You know who Dr. Jason Fung is, and if you don't, go check him out for sure. He was on the Keto Camp Podcast, episode 24, originally where we discussed diabetes, obesity, how to use intermittent fasting for combating things like diabetes, and the calories in, calories out debacle. We talked about this concept called diabesity, which is obesity leading to diabetes, or vice versa. So if you want to listen to that episode after this one, we'll put that in the notes of this podcast. That was episode 24. On this episode, we dive into his book, The Cancer Code. I asked Dr. Fung, out of all the topics out there, all the subjects out there, all the things he could have written about with a new book, why did he choose cancer? This was actually the first question I asked him on the podcast. So you'll get to hear his answer. And then he describes what cancer is, really. What is cancer? Why have we gotten it wrong for so long? We discussed the role of insulin in cancer growth, the role of diabetes and obesity and cancer growth, and how we could do block fasting and different strategies like keto to reduce our risk of cancer growing in the body. We talk about sugar and cancer and why sugar loves cancer. High carbohydrate diets love cancer. We get into that. We also talk about bad fats. You know, you could be doing keto, but eating the wrong fats and potentially feeding cancer. We talk about the benefits of metformin when it comes to preventing cancer. And then we discuss this delicate balance between mTOR, which is that growth pathway in your body, versus autophagy, which is more catabolic and repairing. And we discussed how we don't want too much of either one. We don't want too much mTOR. We don't want too much autophagy. And we just discussed the delicate balance there. And we just get into cancer. All about his new book, The Cancer Code, which, by the way, you could order by clicking the link in the notes of this podcast. So I cannot wait to bring on Dr. Jason Fung. I want to take a second here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from 12me, 13me, 14me, titled Awesome Info for Everyone. I have learned so much from the podcast on so many ways and so many levels than I ever thought to look into. Ben is a wealth of knowledge, has firsthand experience, and he knows how to share it at a basic level. Well, thank you so much for writing that. I'm glad that I could take this information, which can be very scientific and complicated and complex, and cut it up into some bite-sized pieces. That's actually a goal of mine, and I aim to accomplish that. So by you sharing that, I have accomplished that with you. Really means so much. So thank you for leaving that rating review. Thank you for listening to the show. I so appreciate it. The Keto Camp team appreciates it. You know, these reviews are the lifeline of podcasts. They actually help 
podcast grow and reach more people. So those listening right now, if you have not left the Keto Cam Podcast a rating or a review on Apple Podcast, please take the time to do so right now. And if you do, take a screenshot of that honest rating and review, send that screenshot to support at ketocamp.com with your shipping address in the United States, and I will sign a paperback copy of my best-selling book, and I will mail it out to you as a thank you. So that is support at ketocamp.com. All right, let's talk about the cancer code with Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Jason Fung is a leader, a pioneer in the ketogenic low-carb fasting space. He is the best-selling author of The Complete Guide to Fasting, The Obesity Code, The Obesity Code Cookbook, The the Diabetes Code, Life in the Fasting Lane, The PCOS Plan, and The Cancer Code, which is today's topic. Dr. Fung has been featured on TV networks, social media. This man is a legend. I know that you know who he is. So without further ado, let's bring on Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Jason Fung, welcome back to the Keto Camp Podcast. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about your new book, The Cancer Code. And my question for you right off the bat is this. Why is cancer the subject, the topic that you wanted to write a brand new book about? Yeah, this is, it's actually probably, I think, the most interesting sort of question in medicine, because if you think about cancer, so it's, it's always been this great mystery about what it is. So if you think about the other diseases, we sort of know what causes the other diseases, what these other diseases are. So you have heart attacks. Well, what causes it? You get the hardening of the arteries, you get the blockages, and then, you know, clots off, you don't get enough blood, and you get a heart attack in the brain, you get a stroke. So that's the most common cause of death in America today is cardiovascular disease, but we sort of know what the cause of that is. And same with infection. So you know, okay, well, if you have a bacteria, you get infected. If you have a virus like COVID, then you get an infection. So you have bacteria, you have viruses, you have atherosclerosis, and we've, we've sort of figured out a whole lot of these other uh, diseases. But cancer is the number two cause of death in America, and yet we really have no idea what it is. That is, what is cancer? And there's a whole lot of answers, which means that there's nobody who, you know, sort of knows. Because, you know, if you said, oh, what causes, you know, a foot infection? Well, it's a bacteria. You, you, you get like 99 out of 100 people are going to agree and the other one is sort of wacko, right? So the cancer is not like that. It's such an interesting disease because we don't know what it is. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about a lot of because the whole thing is that cancer, the way we think about cancer, the paradigm of cancer has really changed significantly throughout the years. But even within the last 10 years, there's been this enormous shift in how we see the disease, which affects how we treat the disease, because you have to know the underlying cause, right? So if you know that a heart attack is caused by an acute blockage of an artery, you can go in with an angioplasty, you can balloon it open and do very well. So there's no question if you're having a heart attack, that's a great treatment because you understand the cause. If you don't understand the cause, it's a lot harder to figure out treatments because you're sort of just guessing in the dark. So what what was interesting in the last 20-ish years is that there's been this recognition that cancer is actually an obesity-related disease. And that's sort of how I got into it because I'm not a cancer specialist. I'm a nephrologist, which is a kidney specialist. I dealt with a lot of type 2 diabetes. So I went to medical school in the 90s. We talked about cancer and people had this idea that it was this genetic disease. It was actually not until 2003 when the first uh, kind of convincing evidence came out that, hey, cancer is an obesity-related disease. And it turns out that it was a huge, huge, huge part of cancer. That is, if you look at the causes of cancer, sort of, so they do this thing called uh, attributable population risk. So how much in a whole population, how much risk you can ascribe to a certain thing. So tobacco, how much is it worth sort of in terms of contributing to cancer? And it's about 35%. Well, diet turns out to be about 30 to 35% as well. So you're talking about on par with smoking in terms of 
cancer causation, which is huge. So if you think about like the chemicals in our food and so on, the stuff people usually wear, plastics and all this stuff that people worry about being cancer causing, and they can cause cancer because there's a list of carcinogens, but you're talking like 1% perhaps. It, it, it's it, In a population, it, it contributes very little risk, you know, like GMOs or uh, pesticides and stuff. That, that, the stuff that we worry that causes cancer is actually just so, so low compared to diet, yet who's talking about that, right? It's the same magnitude, order of magnitude as smoking, yet it gets sort of, you know, one one one-hundredth of the attention as a cancer-causing agent. Yeah, because I see, Dr. Fung, I see commercials about smoking, about this is, you know, what it's leading to, people that are, are, are breathing through pipes, and they're showing the dangers of smoking and how it leads to disease, but I never see this when it comes to diet, so continue. Yeah, and that's the, that's the interesting part, because it's so recent, this sort of recognition. So since 2003 was the first major study that came out pointing out the risk of obesity, uh, cancer in obesity, then you have a lot of data looking at type 2 diabetes, again, because you know I, I, I write a lot about obesity, I write a lot about type 2 diabetes, right? So that's where I sort of got interested in the, the question of what is cancer and what are its contributors? And how can we understand it? It's, it's not a book about how to cure cancer, because that's not really possible at this point. And it's also, you know, in terms of trying to translate it to sort of specifics like, oh, don't eat this and you won't get cancer. It's very, very hard to do that or eat this and you won't get cancer. Like you can't say that kind of stuff, right? Uh, it, it's not scientifically possible, but there are some sort of general things. So insulin, which I write a lot about, of course, and uh, the obesity code and the diabetes code, you know, the dangers of hyperinsulinemia, that is insulin is a normal hormone, but if you have too much of insulin, then it's a bad thing. So you get obesity, for example. So if you inject people with insulin, they'll they'll become obese. If you uh, give them too much insulin and too much glucose, they'll get type 2 diabetes. Turns out that insulin <laughs> is a major, major growth factor as well. And that is the link to a lot of these cancers. So breast cancer and colorectal cancer being the two most prominent obesity-related cancers, but also pancreatic and liver and so on. So hyperinsulinemia turns out to play a sort of huge role in those as well. And that's sort of linked through several different growth stimulating mechanisms of insulin. And that's the really interesting part because insulin, of course, has always been a sort of metabolic hormone. Okay, So we talk about it for glucose metabolism, we talk about it for lipolysis, you know, that kind of thing. But since the sort of 1980s, there's been this huge realization that it's also a huge growth factor. So insulin-like growth factor, uh, Dr. Lou Cantley did a lot of work on the PI3K pathway, which links insulin directly to the growth pathways. And that's the sort of fascinating part about nutrition anyway and cancer so that's sort of like part two of my book almost is that the, the first part is what is cancer uh, i'll come back to that in a second but the part two is sort of nutrition and cancer you know so it, insulin was always this sort of metabolic hormone it's important in you know how we generate energy that's what we always thought but through this pi3k uh, pathway it's also a very highly potent growth factor and if it's stuff is growing, of course, then cancers will grow too. So anything you, you do to promote growth. And the link is that insulin is a nutrient sensor. That is, it senses the presence of food. And if you eat food, insulin goes up, along with the other nutrient sensors, which is like mTOR is a nutrient sensor, and AMPK is a nutrient sensor. It works in the opposite. When it goes down, energy availability is high. So when food energy is available, that signals actually to our body to grow because that's what makes sense. If you have a lot of food available, you want your cells to grow. If you don't have a lot of food available, you don't want your cells to grow. You want them to go into this sort of maintenance phase as opposed to the growing phase. So that's the, the link between the nutrient sensor insulin and growth. And that's what's fascinating because you know 30 years ago, 
people would have just laughed at you if you said, well, you know, what about insulin and cancer? Now it's like the sort of hottest area of research because we're all recognizing that diseases of metabolism are also diseases of growth. That is too much insulin equals too much growth, which is going to tip the scales into predisposing you to, to cancer. It's not, going to, it's not a cancer-causing agent, but it's a cancer-promoting agent. So that's the super, super fascinating part of cancer in terms of metabolism. And that's, what I, that's sort of how I got into it. And then I was looking into the question of what actually cancer is, which is an even more fascinating question, because what you have to think about is, okay, cancer is this disease where you get a bunch of cells and they grow a lot. Okay, so that's the sort of first paradigm of cancer. That is, it's a disease that grows. So you have a, a lung cancer, for example. So you have a you know, bunch of cells that form a nodule, and they're derived from your own cells, right? So this is not something that's extrinsic. This is actually something that comes within yourself. So it's your own lung cells that have somehow changed, and it grows too much. So you get this cancer, it grows too much, it spreads all over the body, then it kills you. So that's the sort of first paradigm of cancer is that it's a disease of too much growth, which is fine. Then you develop these uh, treatments to try and kill it, like surgery, like radiation, and so on. But the question is, why is it growing, right? That's, that's sort of the next level of understanding. It doesn't mean that the first paradigm is wrong, but you need to understand a bit more about why it's growing. So then that was in the 1970s. So uh, with all the sort of breakthroughs in genetics and so on, we got to the stage where we said, well, it's a disease of genetic mutations, right? So if cells are growing, it's because they have a mutation in the growth gene. So the growth gene, which tells cells to grow, is activated too much. So there's too much growth. Or the growth genes that tell it to stop are not working. So you're either hitting the accelerating, or, or you know that's, that's a, a mutation that increases your growth genes, or you're taking your foot off the brake, right? So you have brakes in the system. So your, your, your cell has signals to go and signals to stop. And you're either got a mutation to you know hit the accelerator, or you have a mutation to take the foot off the brake. Either way, you're you're accelerating growth, and then that's fine. And then the question is, why are these genes mutating? And people say, well, anything that increases your rate of mutation, such as tobacco smoke, for example, or asbestos, it increases, it damages genes, therefore increases the rate of mutation, and just by chance, you're going to get these mutations in a critical pathway and therefore that's why you get it so that was the sort of second um idea about what cancer actually is and so we developed genetic treatments for cancer and the first few were fantastic so there's one called imatinib which really just changed the whole story of this uh you know relatively rare disease called cml it basically cured the whole thing it was just fantastic Perceptin, which is uh, transtazumab, uh, which again really changed the game for a certain a, a subset of breast cancer. So it, it looked great. Like if we could find out the two or three mutations. So say we have colon cancer. Let's let's figure out the two mutations that are causing colon cancer. Develop some antibodies or drugs to treat those mutations. And then you're going to cure it, right? So that was a fantastic thought. So in the 1990s, 2000s, we thought, this is it. We're on the verge of curing cancer, man. This is fantastic. So we did the Human Genome Project, which is a massive, massive undertaking. Fantastically expensive. So we found every gene in the, you know, in the human body. Then uh, they didn't quite get to where they're going. So we did a second study called the Cancer Genome Atlas, which... You know, I think they sequenced like 40,000 cancers or something like that. So not just one whole genome, they sequenced like 40,000 cancer genomes because the technology was so much more advanced by that time. So they're saying, okay, well, let's take each cancer and say, okay, which two or three or four genes do we have? will develop two or three or four drugs, and then that'll be great, right? Turns out when you actually try to look for these genes, as of 2018, there was about six million 
different gene mutations in these different types of cancer, which is a total, you know, it, it was totally killed this because you can't develop 6 million different drugs. Each drug costs an enormous amount of money to develop. So if you have 6 million different mutations, you're just, you know, gone. And the problem is that if you take one person with, um, say, breast cancer, you know, person A with breast cancer or colorectal cancer, they might have 20 mutations. So person B with the similar appearing colon cancer, so it looks exactly the same by pathology, by staging, by everything, would have 20 mutations, but completely different mutations than person A. And person C would have 20 completely different mutations. And person D might have 50 completely different mutations. So it was a total death now for this sort of the genetics uh, paradigm in terms of treatment. Because you can't, one, you can't develop 20 drugs for person A. And two, you can't develop 20 more drugs for person B, right? It, it just was not going to work. It sounds like a so, unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> so even though the genetic sort of paradigm of cancer started out fantastically well, it sort of ran into this, this uh, problem by the sort of 2010s. By the 2010s, the, the progress in cancer just slowed right to a crawl. And nobody knew what was going on because there's so many genetic mutations. But, you know, there's a lot of problems with that random, you know, this idea that it's just a, you know, if you, uh, you, you get this random mutation that happens to hit a gene just by chance. Um, and the problem is that how can you have, remember, every cancer in history developed from your own cells, but the number of mutations that would be required to get a cancer far outstrips the rate of mutation. And if these are all random mutations, then how come every cancer looks exactly the same, right? So person A, person B, person C, person D, they have identical appearing colon cancers, which develop all four of them independently of each other, yet they look exactly the same. Like, how does that work, right? You can't go forward, like, you know, say you're playing a game of chess, and person A, you know, game A is this, game B is that, game C. Like, they don't end up exactly the same after 50 moves or whatever, because the number of different moves you have is so high. Same thing with genes. If you're just mutating randomly, you're going to get like a hodgepodge of completely different things. So that was, you know, another thing that didn't really work. And that's where people started to say, okay, this is not working. And that's sort of in the last 10 years, really what we thought about, which is, you know, cancer as an evolutionary disease, which is a completely fascinating idea because now you can take the tools of evolutionary biology and apply them to cancer instead. And that's what we've done over the last 10 years is say, okay, well, these, all these different mutations are not random because they're all ending up in the same place. They, they all look like colon cancer. So this is not a random chance mutation that you know, people said. It's actually a guided mutation. And what is it guiding towards? And the idea is that the guidance is towards a more primitive form of that cell, right? So if you have a lung cell, it becomes less specialized. It becomes more primitive. That's the way people describe cancers under pathology. It's a primitive cell or it's a, a de-differentiated cell. And that's, that's the idea. And the question is, why are you, you know, so you're going, again, one step further, not just that there are genetic mutations, but why are you developing genetic mutations? And that's the really sort of interesting part. It seems to be this sort of evolutionary process towards a very sort of primitive cell, if you will. So it's, it's not that you're you know, evolving forward, that is changing going forward. You're actually evolving backwards. You know, you started off the in, in you know, way back in, in, in time, your cell looked like this, and now it's evolved to this. Now you're going back towards this, and that's what the cancer is. It's a very primitive cell, and because it's a primitive cell, it doesn't listen to your body, right? Because you're actually evolving back towards a unicellular type uh, approach. So that cell, which evolved initially from a single cell, 
no longer listens to the rest of the body. It becomes sort of this rogue cell that is just doing its own thing. And that's why it's so bad. Because when you have a single cell that doesn't listen to the body, it will just keep growing and growing because that's what it's going to do. It doesn't matter. It's not going to listen to the body to say, stop growing. And then you were giving it all, all these high insulin foods. It's kind of like giving a teenager who has bad habits, all this cash and go to the mall and they start spending all this money on bad <laughs> things, right? It's like the cells start to get all this yeah. insulin and growth and then it just starts to create just havoc inside the body. Is that an accurate uh, analogy? Exactly. So this is exactly what's happening. So it's not actually part of, you know, the control of the rest of the body. It's sort of its own thing. And therefore, it's going to respond to growth signals completely independently of the rest of the body. So where you have hyperinsulinemia, the rest of your body has other signals that will say, hey, stop, stop, stop. You can't grow. You can't grow. Like, obviously, it gets out of control because people become obese, right? So say you take leptin, for example, and, you know, insulin makes you really fat, and then those fat cells will secrete leptin, which is supposed to stop you. But at some point, you know, you override that if you have too much insulin. But there's no, no sort of stuff on the single cell it just will just go yeah great insulin is telling me to go 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 and it's just going crazy and that's really what's happening because so you have to see one what is changing that cell into a cancer but then two what you can do is say well if that cell has changed into a cancer and this happens sort of all the time then what is it going to make that cell grow a lot and insulin is one of those factors. And then three, once it's developed, then you say, okay, well, how are you going to stop that cell from growing? Well, now your, your idea of cancer is completely different. It's not just this genetic disease. So it's not a genetic treatment. What you have to think about is it that it's actually a separate organism, right? It's a foreign organism. You have to think of the cancer not as part of your own body, but it's actually foreign to it. It's derived from the body, but it's foreign to it. And that's how the immune system sees it because there are natural killer cells that will attack cancer cells sort of on site. So it's actually recognized as a foreign substance within the own body. And then you say, well, if you think about cancer now as this sort of evolutionary process, now it's evolved into a separate species that acts more like its own boss. That is a unicellular organism like an infection. Well, now how do you treat an infection? Well, you have to give antibiotics if you can. If you can't, because it's too similar to other cells, then you say you boost the immune system. And that leads to immunotherapy, which is sort of like the next great wave of cancer therapeutics. So it's, it's this really interesting story of sort of how you think about cancer, what cancer is, how this sort of new understanding has led to new research into things like hyperinsulinemia into mTOR, for example, which is where a lot of people, I mean, and that research, of course, is just starting, you know, the whole dialogue around mTOR is relatively new. This whole dialogue around apoptosis and autophagy, and autophagy certainly is something sort of coming up. But again, you think the same thing. Well, what you want to do is put these cells into a maintenance mode, not a growth mode, uh, because they respond to say cell signals. Therefore, something like autophagy or fasting might be very beneficial to preventing cancer development. Not that you'll ever prevent it with these sort of things. There's so many factors pro and there's so many factors against. You want to tip you know, the scales against it. So that's where it's going to link all of, uh, you know, other than when it's, you know, how it's developed in terms of progression of the disease, you've got like, you know, insulin, you've got mTOR, you've got, you're talking about apoptosis, you're talking about autophagy, all of which now get into sort of the metabolic and things that you can change with your diet and, and with fasting, for example. And then, of course, treatment, which is totally different. I mean, once you've got it, you need to treat it. And most of the treatments are sort of, that's where most of the research comes in, trying to figure out what treatments are good, what treatments are bad. And they're great, but it doesn't tell you anything about how to think about the paradigm of cancer. And that's what I wanted to write about is, is the sort of paradigms of cancer. One of the best ways to know if keto is working for you or against you is to look at your blood glucose levels. The body wants one to two teaspoons of glucose in the bloodstream at all times. Anything more than that is considered a toxic state. So what happens is the beta cells in your pancreas are activated to produce insulin 
to shuttle the excess glucose out of the bloodstream into your cells. Now, if this happens from time to time, no big deal. The body is well-equipped to handle it. But when this happens chronically, we develop insulin resistance and eventually type 2 diabetes. What if there was a way to look at your blood glucose levels without having to prick your fingers over and over again? Well, there is a way. CGMs, continuous glucose monitors. This is the best biohacking device you will ever wear. I've worn CGMs for months and it gave me such incredible data on what food, stress, exercise, lifestyle is doing to my glucose levels. The better we could optimize our glucose, the longer we're gonna live, the more inflammation we're gonna reduce, and the healthier we're going to feel. My go-to for CGMs is from NutriSense. I love NutriSense because not only is their product accurate, their app is amazing, and it has all of your data in one place, and you get to work one-on-one with a registered dietitian to understand your own personal health data. For example, the question I get asked all the time, does coffee break my intermittent fast? I always say, maybe. What is it doing to your glucose? And if you test your glucose and see there's a high rise in that glucose from the cup of coffee, then I think it's fair to say some of the benefits of fasting is becoming negated. Not only that, there's a whole bunch of keto foods that you might have a sensitivity to creating a glucose response, that's where CGMs come into play. If you're serious about taking your keto and intermittent fasting results to another level and you want to bypass all of the roadblocks to getting a CGM, then NutriSense is where it's at. I encourage every single one of you to get a CGM from NutriSense. If you go to NutriSense.io slash KETOCAMP and use the coupon code BEN30, that is ben 30 you will receive $30 off any subscription to their CGM programs. Once you have this data, it's going to help you further customize your keto approach so you could get exceptional results. Head to NutriSense.io slash KetoCamp. Use Ben30 at checkout to get $30 off any subscription with their CGM programs. We will also drop a link for you down below in the podcast notes. So we have, you mentioned autophagy. Autophagy is the opposite of mTOR. mTOR is that growth pathway, the mechanistic target of rapamycin. Autophagy is the opposite where it's more catabolic, but the body is seeking out damaged cells and damaged proteins and it's getting rid of that. So we want to get more of a healthier balance between these two pathways. There's an art to it. We don't want too much of either side. When we look at the research, I don't know if you have it in your book, but the research of Dr. Thomas Seafried, he's been quoted as saying a seven-day water fast achieves this maximum autophagy ratio, and he's seen actually tumors shrink before his eyes. Have you seen any of that research or know about it? Yeah, the research is very, very preliminary, and that's the real problem. So Thomas is uh, great because he's sort of on that cutting edge, but, you know, he's sort of one guy, and there's 99,000 other guys looking at, you know, just therapeutics and so on. And, you know, for every one guy looking at fasting as a therapeutic strategy, for example, or low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diets as a therapeutic strategy, there's sort of like... 50,000 people looking at the next drug, right? Because it's, you know, if you find that next drug, you're going to make $10 billion. And you've proved that fasting works, you're not going to make any dollar. Yeah, right? that's so, a big challenge. It's a big challenge. But yeah, I mean, I think it's water fasting, for example, is great because, of course, it's going to maximize autophagy because even something like a ketogenic diet, you're still taking proteins, so therefore you're still turning on mTOR, which is, you know, the, the mTOR is it's going to go uh, up and therefore it's going to turn off autophagy, right? So water fasting is one of the ways to sort of ramp that up and really put your cells into this sort of maintenance mode because the cell really, you have to think about, goes between this sort of growth mode and maintenance mode. So if you're really, you know, not eating anything like fasting, you're going to shift yourself, you know, you're going to lower your insulin, which is going to, remember, insulin is a growth factor, so it's going to lower growth. It's going to lower mTOR, which again is a growth factor, so you're going to lower mTOR. So so then you're putting your, your cell into this sort of maintenance mode where it's trying to get rid of other cells, where it's trying to get rid of extra organelles and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think these sort of things are, you know, impressively important to study 
the studies are just, you know, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, cancer is the tough thing to study because once you get past a certain point, you really can't treat them with these preventative measures, right? You know, it's like uh, if you develop it, I don't know if it's going to be powerful enough to prevent it. If you want to study prevention, you need lots of people because, you know, to do a prevention study on, say, breast cancer, for example, you have to get thousands and thousands of people because most of them will not develop breast cancer. So if you're going to prove that something is going to prevent breast cancer, such as fasting, you need thousands of people. You need to do it for years and years and years because sort of 95% of them won't develop breast cancer anyway. So it's tough to, to, to sort of study that. So and then once you get the breast cancer, can you do anything about it? Like, is it, is it enough at that point? Because you're studying in essence, a preventative strategy. So you can't take people who have already had it because you don't know if it's going to prevent it. You can prevent the next one or stuff. So there's ways to get around it, but it certainly is theoretically a very, very interesting and, you know, important way that would theoretically lower your risk. I I say theoretically because, you know, there's just no data. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So I recently interviewed Dr. Erin Keneally. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but she had some interesting research, and I want to share it and see if your research aligned with hers just out of curiosity. Number one, she shared that when she was looking at cancerous cells, that the, the well, a typical cell has about 30,000 receptor sites. She said a cancer cell, when she looked at it, had about 64 receptor sites for glucose versus a healthy cell that should have four receptor sites for glucose. Have you seen something similar with your research? Um, I haven't looked at the receptors so much, but certainly the glucose avidity is is well known for uh, cancer. It would sort of make sense because cancers run on glucose much better than they run on, say, fat. It's not to say that they can't run on fat. They could. But, you know, for a cell that's trying to grow, your best strategy is to use sort of um, any fuel. So that's why there are cells that can run on you know, uh, protein as well. So, um, there are cancer cells it, that could run on protein is what you're saying. And fat and, yeah. and, so and it's, ketones. It's not, uh, I don't know about ketones, okay. but on fat, there definitely is. And so some of these cells, for example, are so avidly sort of amino acid avid. You can do the similar sort of thing as you do with the PET scan with certain types of amino acids. So, so it's not exclusive to glucose but essentially what it is is glucose is the most easily available um you know fuel it's the one that makes stuff run the easiest so cancers do very well with glucose compared to you know trying to run on fat i mean it's like taking a car that runs on gas and giving it gas as opposed to okay let's give it diesel well you have to make all these modifications and changes or let's run it on solar well you can do it but it takes a lot of work to change it to do that right as opposed to ah, let's just fill it up with some gas right it's the same thing for glucose the cells are already primed ready to go for glucose so if you give it a lot of glucose it is ready to go right but if you starve it of glucose it can change and and uh you know go into these other fuels fuels to survive but yeah it's it's certainly you know that's one of the key things that we've we've known for many years is that the uh cancer of course picks up the glucose very very avidly uh, and that's why you do the PET scan, which is a positron emission tomography, which is that you look for the cells that are taking up way too much glucose, and that's your cancer cell. So you mark the glucose with some radioactivity. You let you know the cells take up the glucose, and there's these cells over here that light up like a Christmas tree, right? They, they're just sucking up glucose like 10 times, 15 times the rate of everybody else. That's your cancer cell. No other cell in the body does stuff like that. So it's got to be a cancer cell. And then you get into the question, which is very interesting, of the Warburg effect as to why these cancers are sucking up glucose like nobody's business. And that's a bit controversial. You know, is it due to, you know, what Dr. Seyfried talks about, which is dysfunctional mitochondria? It's a possibility. I mean, there's still a lot of people, but there's a lot of reasons that it might, other than, you know, other than defective mitochondria, there's a lot of reasons why cancer might 
choose glucose as opposed to the other. I think one of the most interesting is actually the lactate. So when you take up glucose, your cancer cell breaks it down into lactate because it's, it's uh, breaking down through glycolysis as opposed to oxidative phosphorylation. So what that means is that you take the glucose and normal cells will burn it with oxygen. You take the glucose, you burn it with oxygen and you get like 36 ATP, which is the unit of energy. If you take glucose and don't burn it with oxygen through glycolysis, you get two ATP plus lactic acid. And that's what cancer cells do. So normal cells, they say, well, you know, let's take the glucose, burn it and get 36. Cancer says, you know, we'll take the glucose and we'll get two plus some lactic acid. And they do this, like 80% of cancers will do this. And, and you might say, why? Why, are, why is that happening? And that's the Warburg effect. So we know that it's happening. The question is why it's happening. And so there's one theory that says, well, because oxidative phosphorylation, this sort of, you know, high octane sort of pathway where you get tons of energy out of the glucose is damaged because it happens in the mitochondria and the mitochondria are not normal. That's one possibility, and that's what Warburg thought. That was the back in 1965 when he published his uh, thing. The problem is that it's, and it might be true for some cases, but in other cases, they find that the oxidative phosphorylation is actually normal in some cancer cells, which means that they aren't using this sort of high octane pathway because they don't want to. Right? Not that they can't; they don't want to. So then the question is why? And I think one of the more interesting hypotheses that's coming out lately is that it's the lactic acid. It's not that lactic acid is a waste product. Lactic acid actually helps the cancerous cells. And the point is that if you make a lot of acid and you dump it into the system, then you can impair the body's defenses. So you have a bunch of sleeper, you know, a bunch of rogue cells sitting in the middle. It's going to get attacked immune system and cells going to try and wipe it out, right? So what they do is they take the glucose, make a bunch of lactic acid, dump it into the surrounding system and protect themselves by making that area, that local tumor microenvironment, highly acidic. And that's, a, that's another you know, great hypothesis. And I think that um, there is some experimental evidence to say that's true. Like, and that would explain why cancers are using the Warburg effect. It's not some mistake. It's not just a mistake by the cancer. Because the thing is that cancer survives everything, right? Everything we can throw at it survives everything. None of this is by mistake. So if 80% of cancers are using the Warburg effect, it's because there's a good reason for that. And the question is, is that reason because of the lactic acid is highly beneficial to, you know, protect itself? So that's a good question. I, I think it's a, a reasonable hypothesis. The other thing, of course, is that glucose, you know, if you take glucose and you make 36, say 40 ATP, right? Well, you can do the same thing. So if you have one glucose, you get, say, 40 ATP just for easy numbers with oxidative phosphorylation. Say you take 10 glucose or 20 glucose and make 40 ATP, you still got 40 ATP at the, at the end, right? The difference is that you take 10 or 20 times more glucose to do it, which is only an advantage when glucose is a scarce commodity, right? So in a condition where you have glucose everywhere, like type 2 diabetes, well, that higher sort of efficiency, one glucose equals 48, uh, 36 ATP, is not an advantage if there's like 10 million glucose sitting in your backyard, right? It, it's simply not an advantage because everybody says, well, it's so, you know, so much of an advantage because you get so much more ATP. Like, who cares? If you have 10 million glucose in your backyard and I need to take 20 of them, who cares, right? I don't care if it's a highly inefficient process. I have tons of feedstock, right? I have tons of stuff coming in. So therefore, in a situation like we have today, where you're talking about people who are overweight, obese, hyperinsulinemic, type 2 diabetes, lots and lots of glucose, lots and lots of insulin, hey, there's no, no advantage to oxidative phosphorylation. So those are the sort of uh, things you, know, you have to think about in terms of cancer. A lot of unanswered questions, for sure. But 
you know, it's interesting. These sort of things are very interesting to think about because they have implications. That is, hey, what if I limit my hyperinsulinemia and limit my glucose availability? That's going to be good for cancer if that's the case because the cancer loves this stuff. So therefore, I can do it. And you can do it with nutrition, not some type of drug, right? Now, the nutrition by itself may not be enough once you have a cancer. But before you develop the cancer, it may be enough to tip the balance towards not getting that cancer, right? So it's, you know, that's why it's important to know, to, to, to understand cancer a little bit. Yeah, and I love the analogies. I mean, you're the king of analogies. They're so great and they're helpful for people to understand, myself included. So thank you for the analogies. The next question is this. From my research, Dr. Papa, who I work with, your mutual friend of his, Dr. Kate Shanahan, Brian Peskin, we see that these inflammatory fats, and you touched upon a little bit, but fats like vegetable oils, these unstable, adulterated fats, are actually could be worse when it comes to inflammation. Do you think that these bad fats could increase our chances of cancer more than sugar? Uh, it's a, it's possible. It's hard to know. Again, the data simply are not there to make any sort of yes, no sort of answer. I mean, anything that increases inflammation is going to be a risk of cancer. That is, if you think about why cancer develops into this sort of primitive cell, like you go from a, a cell in a multicellular organism, so like your liver, you know, your liver cell, your individual liver cell exists in harmony with a whole lot of other cells, right? Like your liver, your lung, your heart, and you know, your blood, all that sort of stuff. But then you've evolved that liver cell, which is a single cell living harmoniously in a you know nice multicellular, multicultural environment, and it evolves into this liver cell, basically out for its own good, right? It doesn't try to help anybody; it tries to hurt other people, and it's probably because of inflammation and chronic damage. So anything that causes chronic damage to the body puts a selective pressure, a selection pressure in a Darwinian sense towards a more sort of survivalist mode. As your cell tries to go more and more towards this survivalist mode, it becomes more and more like this primitive cell. So any chronic uh, sublethal damage, so if you look at tobacco smoke, it's a chronic poison. Ionizing radiation is a chronic, so low-level radiation exposure over a long period of time. It causes uh, cancer, right? Well, no. Lots of these toxins, infections, so viral infections, bacterial infections like H. pylori, uh, chronic damage, or even if you have like chronic acid reflux, that's an uh, stomach acid is a natural product, right? It's supposed to make your stomach acidic, but because the stomach acid goes back up into the esophagus, it causes chronic damage, which is a huge risk for cancer. So any kind of chronic infection, chronic damage, chronic uh, inflammation is going to be sort of pro-cancer development. And where these inflammatory oils come in, it's a good question. Certainly, there's a lot of people looking at this. So, you know, we talk about omega-3s and omega-6s and how both are actually essential essential, um, fatty acids but the balance went way off, right? So now we're just taking so much more omega-6s than we used to because, you know, say canola oil or, or corn oil. Like we use this all the time, like in, in, our, in our food system, there's a ton of vegetable oil. We don't eat that many vegetables, right? Like there's just so much vegetables going into vegetable oil. So it's just way off. The ratio of how much omega-6s to omega-3s are just, we're, you know, instead of one to one, we're like 10 to one, 20 to one. So it's so far off that it may be causing this chronic inflammation. So a lot of people think these chronic inflammatory things are caused by vegetable oils. And it's the chronic inflammation, which would also be sort of pro-cancers. But, you know, again, the data is, is very tough. I mean, it's, that hasn't been looked at. And this, these are the things that need to be sort of explored further. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that, but it's, it's certainly a possibility in my mind. 
Yeah, well, well stated. And you know, it, omega six is not bad for us unless it's the adulterant and it's an excess, which is what you're seeing with the soybean oil, the canola oil. I want to take this opportunity here to just get to some questions that was posted on my social media from uh, those who love you, and there's so many. So Carol says, I have a question for Dr. Fong. What are your thoughts on metformin as a possible cancer preventative and anti-aging treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. That's one of the only things I talk about in the book in terms of drugs, metformin, uh, because there's a little bit of data in terms of if you have type 2 diabetes, the metformin may be better in terms of cancer prevention than some of the other stuff. Now, is it because it's not bad or is it actually good for you? And the way it works is that metformin actually acts on AMPK, which is this other nutrient sensor. And that's a lot of its prolongevity effects, which are sort of theoretical because there's no real data there either, but is related to the effects on AMPK. And again, it's about turning down the nutrient sensor, turning down the excessive growth because your body sort of is either in growth mode or it's maintenance mode. So if you are in growth mode all the time, everybody thinks that's great, but it's actually bad for longevity. It's like your car. If you rev it all the time, you will go faster, no doubt but it will burn out a lot faster, right? So if you want to be in sort of longevity mode, you need to go slower. You need to not rev the car. Uh, you want your metabolic rate to be lower. You need to eat less and lower your rate. So it's like, that's not great for weight loss because you, people would rather eat more and burn more. But it's like, okay, that's like your car, which you want to you know, put it in neutral and rev it really high. You're not going anywhere in the end, right? Same as if you eat you know, 4,000 calories, burn 4,000 calories versus eat 1,200 calories, burn 1,200 calories, which is going to be better for you. Well, it's the same thing. You're revving, you're revving your metabolic engine. In a longevity sense, that may not be good for you. So metformin actually affects the AMPK, turning down the insulin, uh, not the insulin, it's the AMPK. It uh, turns it up, which means the body thinks that there's no energy availability, which is going to put it more towards the sort of maintenance sort of thing. So that's why people think it's beneficial. So there's a little bit of data for breast cancer and a whole lot of people using it for longevity sort of off-label. Yeah, well said. I, you know, you're, you just debunked the whole myth that we want a faster metabolism. That's not necessarily true. It might help you with your performance short term, but you're going to age yourself faster. I think we want an, an efficient metabolism. The also, I want to share this because a lot of people get into the research, your research on autophagy, and they see the benefits of autophagy. But then they go and they get too much autophagy and they become too catabolic. So what are the dangers of getting too much autophagy? What are some things that could start to happen in the body? Yeah, so I mean, that's it's like everything. You really want to be in the middle because too much is bad, too little is too bad. So autophagy is the same, insulin is the same, right? So in sort of, you know, in a sense, you, you really want to maintain that sort of middle ground for the most part. I think in recent days, we've tended to swing so far to too little of autophagy, for example, that is, oh, let's eat six meals a day, right? So every time you eat, of course, you're going to turn autophagy right off. So eat all the time, never fast, you know, don't let two hours go without putting a muffin in your mouth. All that sort of stuff is going to turn off autophagy. So we've gone so far into too little that you know, bring it back is probably a good thing. You know, in the past, of course, when people were had no food to eat and so on, then you get too far into the, you know, autophagy, which is where your body basically is ramping itself down and you can go down too far. Uh, but I don't think it's any danger at this point where we are, like in the past 30 years, like we've gone so far into the eating, 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 eating all the time, even to lose weight, right? It's like, oh, you know, how do you gain weight? You eat. How do you lose weight? You have to eat. And it's like, what are you talking about, right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so it's like, so we're so far off into the other side that I think you could go too far, but it's difficult where from our starting point right now, like any individual person, yeah, you could go too far. But you have to eat. I mean, obviously, protein is a important part. If you don't get enough protein, you're going to die. Like if you don't get enough fatty acids, you're going to die. So you have to have enough. Um, but we're, you know, we're at too much for everything generally these days, right? Too much of 
to eating too often, too much protein, too much fat, too much carbs. Everything's sort of too much. So bringing it back is, is generally a good thing. Yeah, well said. Next question here is from Portia Alexia, who said, what fasting protocols can we implement for the prevention of cancer, management of cancer, and for the improvement of symptoms of chemotherapy? So the the only good evidence right now is for improvement of symptoms of chemotherapy. So what there's been a few studies where they fast for 24 hours before chemotherapy. And the idea is chemotherapy is a selective poison. So it basically kills the cancerous cells a little bit faster than it kills regular cells. So the idea with fasting is that you're going to turn down the cell growth, normal cell growth. So normal cells will sort of ramp down their growth and therefore they will be less susceptible to chemotherapy, which tends to kill fast growing cells. Cancer cells, of course, are generally go, 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 go. So they can't turn themselves down as easily as opposed to the regular cells. So your regular, you know, and that's why you, you lose your hair. So hair follicles, for example, are very fast growing cells. So they actually sustain the most damage from chemotherapy and your hair falls out during chemotherapy. Same as you get the nausea because the, the lining of the, the intestines and the stomach is a very fast growing cell. So it takes a lot of damage. So if you can do the fasting to put those cells into a slower growth mode, they will have less damage from the chemotherapy where cancer cannot turn itself down quite so easily. So that's the, the idea. So it's been shown to be safe. It's been shown that you can tolerate the chemotherapy better. And then there's not much evidence for fasting in terms of prevention of cancer, interestingly, because it's such a hard study to do. But if you can maintain yourself, so we know that, for example, type 2 diabetes is going to increase your risk of cancer substantially. We know that obesity will increase your risk of uh, cancer substantially. So therefore, if you can use fasting to reduce your type 2 diabetes or reduce your obesity, then you would expect that that would have add-on benefits in terms of prevention of cancer, but that's not proven. Yeah, exactly. Well said. All right, I want to close on this, Dr. Fong. All right, your book, The Cancer Code, A Revolutionary New Understanding of a Medical Mystery, is set to be released on November 10th, 2020. I'm going to put the pre-order link down below of the podcast and the YouTube video, so go pre-order it. I cannot wait to dig into it. But I was looking on, your, on the Amazon page here, and I don't know if you wrote this or somebody else wrote it, but it was such a brilliant line, and I want to close on this and what this means to you. Here's the quote. The seed of cancer may exist in all of us, but the power to change the soil is in our hands. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that's the idea that because this cancer is actually derived from ourselves and it's probably derived from that original cell that we sort of developed from, that means every cell has the ability to become a cancer because it's just a sort of remnant of our evolutionary past. And that's the reason why almost every single cell in the body can become cancerous. Not only that, but every multicellular organism can get cancer. That is, it's not a human disease. Dogs get it, cats get it, rats get it, even hydra, which are one of the very simple microscopic forms that people study in high school biology, they get cancer. So it's not simply a, oh, this is because we're human and we're eating plastic. Um, the whole idea, like these cats aren't eating plastic, for example, in the wild, but they still get cancer because the seed is there, but it doesn't mean that you will get cancer because it will depend on these other factors like diet, like lifestyle, like exposure to tobacco smoke and asbestos and all that sort of thing. So if you can't control the seed, then you can control the soil and then you can still prevent it from growing because you're not giving that cancer seed the fertile soil that it needs to grow. And that's what's really important. So changing our foods, changing, you know, doing the fasting, maybe something like metformin, which is considered chemoprevention, of which there are very few actually proven things. So green tea is the other one I talk about because green tea has a little tiny bit of evidence that supports that perhaps the antioxidants and the catechins in green tea could 
maybe prevent cancer. And there's a bit of data on this. You know, the Japanese drink a lot of green tea and they do all these studies and they say, well, you know, according to our studies, it prevents cancer and it's possible. But the good thing about green tea, of course, is that it's not a drug. It's a whole food, easily available, relatively inexpensive sort of thing. So, you know, that's the idea. So if you can't work on the seed, which is what we've been working on for so long, which is let's look at the genetics of it try and fix the genetics that got us very you know little then we can work on the soil which is a better strategy for that what was the most surprising thing you came across in your research in cancer i think this is the most interesting part is that sort of evolutionary link the data they're actually fascinating because if you look at the predictions of this sort of evolutionary theory of why these genetic mutations happen, that it's an evolutionary response. We don't develop these mutations by accident. The the cells evolve these and the mutations are actually clustered. So what they did was they they looked at all the mutations in cancer and they didn't say, okay, well, let's, let's rank them according to, you know, where they are. They said, let's rank them according to when they happen. So they took the genes, they divided them by sort of evolutionary time. So, you know, these genes are from this era, from this era. So there are some very ancient genes like mTOR, like insulin. There's some relatively evolutionary uh, recent genes. And they looked at sort of when these mutations happen. And they're all clustered at that transition point between unicellular and multicellular life, which is fascinating because then you say that is where the disease happened from the transition from a single-celled organism, which basically wants to compete with all other cells, to a multicellular organism. So that single cell has to go from every man for himself to being a team player, right? There's a huge transition from going to a, from a single cell in a multicellular system. It's the difference between saying, you know, doing an individual sport and doing a team sport, right? There's a big, big, big difference because instead of competing with other cells, now you're cooperating with other cells. It's that transition from unicellular to multicellular life. That's where all the action happens. That's where the disease happens. And that's what was fascinating that there's actually evidence now because we've figured out, you know, the 6 million mutations, different mutations. It's not 6 million genes, but different mutations in those genes. So some genes will have different, you know, this guy will have mutation one, mutation two, mutation three, all in the same gene. But all of these different genes, because we've mapped them all out, we've sorted them out, we can say, well, this is where, this is where cancer happens. It's in the transition between unicellular and multicellular life. And that is what sort of spurred that whole evolutionary theory. And you can actually trace it. So there's, uh, you know, if you look at studies, they'll actually look at the, the, the change over time of the, the evolution of these cancers. It's fascinating. Super fascinating. So Dr. Jason Fung, where do you want the keto campers to go check you out? Where, where, what's the call to action for them? <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's lots of different ways to do it. So, you know, check out the, the book. Uh, like, I think it's the most interesting stuff, you know, I've, I've looked at. Like, honestly, it's just so interesting and new. So the cancer code, you can also go to thefastingmethod.com, which is the program we run to help people with the fasting because fasting is great and all that, but it's not super fun and it's not always easy to stay on. So we're trying to provide the tools and the community for people to be successful at fasting. And that's at thefastingmethod.com. So we'll put those links down below along with your social media handles. Uh, Thank you for your continued work in the world. You are a pioneer. I said on the last episode, we did the first episode and you just mean so much to my work and my community and just to the world. You're a gift. So please keep doing what you're doing. Keep going forward. Never stop. And I just want to thank you for this conversation. It was so needed, Jason. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you got so much from that episode with Dr. Jason Fung. Go order his book right now by heading to the link in the notes of this podcast and share this episode with a friend. Share it with somebody you know who could value a conversation 
like this. And hey, hey, let Dr. Jason Fung and myself know you listen by taking a screenshot, posting that screenshot on Instagram, and tagging me at TheBenazadi, at KetoCampOfficial, and at Dr. Jason Fung. When I see it, I'll share it. We'll get some other keto campers following you back. I encourage you to leave the Keto Camp Podcast an honest rating and review on Apple Podcast. And if you do, take a screenshot. Send that screenshot to support at ketocamp.com. Put your shipping address in the United States only, and I will sign a paperback copy of my book and mail it out to you as a thank you. If you want to watch the video version of this interview with Dr. Jason Fung, which I highly recommend you do, that can be found on our Keto Camp YouTube channel. YouTube.com slash Keto Camp is where you can find the video interview with Dr. Jason Fung. Go watch that now. Enjoy it. And then go listen to episode 24 of the Keto Camp podcast with Dr. Jason Fung, where we talked about diabetes. We'll put links for all of that in the notes of this podcast. Thank you so much, Keto Camper, for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp podcast. You'll hear me on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.